morning we're going to be in John chapter 13, starting with verse 18. And the last time we looked at the, the Jesus, the teaching that Jesus did on washing the disciples' feet, and we learned that even though the teaching was on washing feet, it had absolutely nothing to do with washing feet. So if you weren't here, you just have to come and get the message. And if you look at, and some, some of you have, I have a chronological Bible. It actually shows Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it's really neat how they just take sections and the way it's believed that everything happened in, in, in according to time. And what is believed is that Luke 22 happened just before this teaching. Now, in Luke 22, the disciples are walking with Jesus for some three-plus years, and then they start kind of arguing, or, you know, maybe it's a pursuit in ego, about who's the greatest disciple. So instead of Jesus really answering that, he shows them this, this teaching about washing each other's feet. And he says, if you really want to be a leader, you've got to be low. You've got to be a servant. You know, he who wants to be greatest has to be abased. So it's a great teaching, and, and I can imagine, like I said last Sunday, that you could have heard a pin drop as Jesus bent down to start washing the disciples' feet. And I believe that what he did squashed that argument. I can just imagine the disciples going, oh, it's not important anymore. You know what I'm saying? So today he's going to, and the rest of it, he's going to announce his betrayal. Uh, betrayal was from Judas out of self-seeking. And contrast that with the teaching of love, which is other-seeking. So we're going to jump in in verse 18. Jesus said, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be filled, fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. He uses, he speaks about the betrayal, and it's interesting because if we go back into the Old Testament, I'm going to read two quick passages. The first one is in Psalm 41.9, which Pastor Paul actually covered on Wednesday night. On Wednesday nights, uh, it says this, and this is a psalm of David, speaking about when he was betrayed. It's, I want to read this because it's actually richer. You know, Jesus quotes it, but this whole psalm is, is pretty powerful. It says, David it says, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And I'm going to speak about the Middle Eastern cultures of passing the bread to each other, and it's more intimate than how we would normally share a meal. If we go to 2 Samuel 15, 12, just to shed a little bit more light on this. 2 Samuel 15, 12, one verse. Now Absalom is one of David's son, who started a rebellion against his father to take the kingdom. And in verse 12 it says, Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor. So this is most likely referring to somebody who was very close to David who betrayed him uh, from his city, namely Gilo, where he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. So whether it's David or Christ or anyone else, if you're serving the Lord, you will have these things happen to you. Now, if you just want to be a nominal Christian and not really serve the Lord, don't worry too much, because it probably won't be that bad. But if you are serving the Lord, you have to understand that these things will come. How many have been betrayed? Raise your hand. Wow, a lot of you. <laughs> if you live long enough or you're part of a solid ministry, eventually it'll happen in your life to some degree. But I believe that Jesus gives lessons 
in how to handle it. Jesus was the master of loving in a firm manner and also loving in a gentle manner. We'll go through this. So the first thing that Jesus does is he exposes it. He exposes the conspiracy. He says right at the table with his disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And he continues along that vein. And the Bible's clear that evil is done in darkness. It's done in secrecy. Keep it between this group. Let's not let it get out. However, the Bible says to expose things like that, even if something that may happen here. I'm like, don't, don't try to hide it. Let's flesh this out. Let's see, shine the light on it. Shine God's word on it and see where it goes. Right? That's important. Conspiracies only grow greater and greater, and then they become disastrous. And you can see that in the government all the time and time again. Every successive administration does not learn from the previous administration. Now, why does Jesus do this? Because he's mean? No, because he's looking to elicit a response of repentance. He loves Judas. And I'm going to make that case as we go through the scripture. Okay, so that's the first thing he does. Now, in verse 19, he says, I'm telling you beforehand so that you know that Ego, I me, right? In the Greek, I am, that redundancy. Grammatically, it doesn't even make sense. I am what? Well, the translators put I am he. Well, they added that. It actually is, he says, you'll know that I am, which is the name in Exodus 3 that God used when he was speaking to Moses. So Jesus is claiming deity. Two things that Jesus wants reinforced at this table. Number one is for them to know that he's a prophet, which means he can predict the future. And the fact that he's a prophet is predicated upon the fact that, two, he is God. He's divine. Now, why is this important? Because in the next several hours, the disciples are going to have their faith shaken tremendously. These guys God is going to use to be the pillars of the early church, and their faith is going to be shaken. It's going to happen in our lives as well. And that's why I say we need to be in the word. We need to be in prayer. We need to be in fellowship. And what happens when we have a tragedy? Sometimes, if we're not doing it right, what Satan does, he picks off those three. We stop praying. We stop fellowshipping. And we don't read our Bibles anymore. And then it becomes more disastrous. It becomes a catastrophe. So even the disciples, as we're going to go through this, these guys, you guys, these guys, you know, they're going to be in the garden, and Jesus is going to implore them to stay awake and pray, and they're all falling asleep on him. So they're not going to be prepared. I will tell you this, that for all of us in this room, we need to be in the word. We need to be in prayer. We need to be in fellowship. Because when something happens, you, me, we're not going to have anything to draw from. And we're going to panic. And we're going to react in fear. Because we don't have these things under our belt spiritually. Now, Judas, people have been arguing this for thousands of years. He fulfilled scripture. However, he maintained his responsibility. Both things were happening at the same time. 20. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. What is Jesus describing? Ambassadorship. The Father has sent me. I'm sending you. Ambassadorship. Also, for them to remember that Jesus is a direct conduit to the Father. Why? Again, because Satan's plot was to destroy Christ and to destroy humanity from receiving the only way of salvation. There's a lot on the line here in this dinner, isn't there? In the next few hours, there's a lot on the line on these 12 men. Okay? 
to be close to the Father and to not let anything pull them away. Now, in 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul speaks about the the Christian experience, and it's kind of neat. Let's see. Uh, In high school, I ran track. I was also 45 pounds lighter, all right? So it was easier. But I remember when you run track, you're running track, you're running a marathon, you have the track, and that's really what you should be focused on. So the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says that we run the race as believers, but we run to win, to get the prize, not just to run for no apparent purpose. But whether you're running a marathon and the stakes are even higher because you have the track and nobody's supposed to be on the track except the runners, but what do you have on the side? People taking pictures, people want to give you a granola bar, people want to ask you if you want your face on the next cereal box because you're pretty out, you're out in the front, hey, come over here and talk to me. What are they? They're distractions. Bible calls us to be ambassadors of the living God, ambassador. In other words, we're in this world of, of tangibility of flesh and blood. This is a foreign planet to us. This is a foreign universe because it's tangible. The Lord, when we're born again, he sends us into this place spiritually to tell the inhabitants of this tangible world that there's another world. And I'm going to open up a scripture in a few moments that's going to blow your doors off if you've never heard it. Three verses. Three. Uh, But the bottom line is, when we run our race, I see sometimes the body count on the side of the track. In Western Christianity, there's so many distractions. I see the bodies, the Christians, you know, the, with the tank tops and the numbers and the shorts, and they're piled up. They're not running the race anymore. They've been pulled off of the track. God calls us to be ambassadors. So keep that in mind. A lot of different images that, that God uses in his word. It's really beautiful. 21. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now in Matthew 26 and Luke 22, and I love to do this with these parallel scriptures, there's a little bit more added. Number one, the disciples are questioning themselves. Is it I, Lord? Imagine that. I think I love you. I think I'm I'm not sure. Is it I? They also question among themselves. This was a shock to them. And I guess the question this morning is, do we really know ourselves? You see, the seeds of self-deception grow ever so slowly, ever so slowly. Just like certain vegetation can grow really slowly, and if it's in a rocky area, this has happened in Israel, eventually it splits the rock. And you say, how is that scientifically possible? It happens. Slowly it puts pressure pressure and pressure and then the rock starts to fracture and there's this vegetation that's really broken up the ground over there very impressive very powerful so the question is what are we capable of what are we incapable of a lot of times we don't know until we're thrust into that situation jeremiah 17 says that the heart is desperately wicked who can know it that includes me that's why we need to be about our lord's business that's why we need to be really close to him 23. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, is it I? Is it I? So there's a stir in the disciples. Please tell me, Lord, that it's not me. 
Please tell me it's not me. Now, everyone had the question, but of course, Peter is the one who, as he usually does, he said, oh, I got I to gotta ask, you know, John, will you please? He's motioning to him. Now, you've got to look at the, the situation of the seating arrangement. Remember, we spoke about the triclinium. I've covered this before in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, where it's basically uh, it's, it's shaped in sort of like a C or a U. There's three sides to it. And what would happen was, in that culture, you could sit at times, but in certain special meals, they would actually recline. And they would have mats. And they would usually lean on their left arm, recline, and they would kind of be lined up. So probably, if we understand this correctly, Peter's motioning. He's too far away to ask Jesus directly what's going on. So he's motioning. Possibly, after the teaching about uh, the washing of the feet and being a servant, maybe Peter said, you know, let me try the humility thing. I'll go sit all the way in the back. And what it does appear is that, and I'll I'll explain why I believe this, is that John was literally to his right, because he refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, and we'll cover that, And Judas was probably to the left. Now, in that culture, even though the Bible says that Christ is seated at the right hand of God, that's God's kingdom. However, in that culture of man, a person on the left would have the seat of honor, and I'm going to cover that as well. So Judas was honored and loved by Jesus. So what we have is this situation. And if you can picture it, Jesus is leaning over here, and John's in front of him, and all John has to do is lean back, Lord, and he's, he's on top of him. So that's the whole thing about leaning on his, on his chest or his bosom. It all makes sense. So he's asked a question. Now, to some it's a little weird how, how close they were, and, and some have wrongly speculated about that. But Middle Eastern culture is very different then and today. As American men, we're a little, you know, don't touch me, don't invade my, my comfort zones. That, it wasn't that way. There was more of a camaraderie, there's more of a closeness. closeness. As a matter of fact... When I first became a Christian, I found it odd that guys started hugging me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, I wanted to do the handshake thing, and these guys would grab me and give me a bear hug. And I'm like, oh, you know, just go with it. You know, let's see what happens. <laughs> you got Mike, our usher back there, or, or Sam over there. I mean, if they get a hold of you, they're not letting go. You know? So just relax and go with it. Everything's going to be fine. Jesus is awesome. And John referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, at first glance, that could seem arrogant. That could seem, you know, Jesus playing favorites. But I think that John, and I would say that I'm the sinner that Jesus loved too, not in an arrogant way. It's this inexplicable grace. Who can explain the grace that God has given us? So you you go around your whole life. I mean, he's walking with Jesus. Jesus is loving people. He's healing them. All John sees is love. So he's like, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. So just understand that. And I think we can claim that for ourselves too, that inexplicable grace. God loves me as an individual. He loves us corporately as a church. He loves us aggregately as the body of Christ in all the world. But he also loves us individually. That's, That's pretty awesome. 26. Jesus answered, it is he whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. So the second point in dealing with Judas, the first one was exposing the situation. The second point is expose, but not destroy. Jesus didn't come out and say, he stepped back and go, hey, disciples, it's him. You know, 
blanket party. You know, if you're in the, in the military, boop, 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 you know, he didn't want Judas to catch a beating. He wanted it to be exposed, but he didn't want to destroy him. So that's, that's important to look at. He wanted natural repentance. He didn't want forced repentance. And it did take a lot of character, of course, he's the son of God, to show restraint when he knew what was going to befall him because of this man and his self-centered uh, ideas. And you know, as believers, again, it's this whole idea of these, the, the metal of these believers is going to be tested. And we're going to be tested too. For the better part of 10 years, I've been a field training officer for young officers, um, some unofficially in the beginning, and then when they sent me to school, officially. And I have to tell you, it's interesting watching them go on the job and drive around and letting them have the wheel and see how they interact with people. Whether it's the police academy or the textbook, well, this is the way it's supposed to work. Yeah, but you're dealing with people now. You know what I'm saying? It's different. And it's true, even as believers, we, we read, we understand, we think we know, and then we're put into the fiery furnace, and sometimes we don't do that well. The disciples didn't do that well, so take heart on that one. So there's a big difference between textbook and now let's go through it and see what happens. 27. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. So here's the third point. The Lord allows it to run its course. Now remember, Judas is fulfilling scripture. Um, there may be times in our lives if we can make some parallels where another person or a group of people may be hurt. So we do have to intervene. But in this instance, this had to be fulfilled. So he allowed it to run its course. Now, Satan entered Judas. But the disciples were protected. Remember, these were the same group of men that Jesus gave the power to raise the dead and to cast out demons. So how could Satan come in? Because Judas allowed it. See, the, at first we see the suggestion as we go through the scripture given to Judas. And that's how it starts, brothers and sisters. When we find ourselves in a disaster, you know, it didn't just happen overnight. It could have been over a course of months and years. Satan is very patient. He'll work on you. He'll work on me very slowly. And he'll start little bit by little bit. He's got all the time. You know, he's got all that time. So Judas, uh, eventually, it, Satan entered him at that point. He was fertile ground for the enemy to come into him and to do this deed. I want to read a scripture to you. And if you would, turn to Luke 11, verses 24 through 26. You know, a lot of people write religious books and, and you know, they have illusions of grandeur about being a Messiah-type figure. When Jesus wrote, he wrote about things in the unseen world that nobody could have known unless they actually came from heaven as he did. Every once in a while, the Lord in his word, and I love this, he'll tell us how to live, he'll tell us how to interact with each other. Every once in a while, the Lord will take the curtain of the tangible world and he'll open it up and he'll say, look, angels, demons, demonic forces, things going on behind the scene, even in our very lives that we don't know, that Jesus is exposing. So here is another one of those uh, types of uh, scenarios. In Luke 11, 24, and he even repeats this in, in Matthew's gospel. Matthew thought it was impressive enough to put it in there as well. It says, when an unclean spirit or a demon goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. 
And, he, and finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. Remember, our bodies have been many times spoken of as like tents or aboding places or houses. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Kind of puts, kind of, your hair stands up in the back of your neck. And he's basically saying that, you know, you can come to church, you can hear the gospel, you could be driving around and see a a billboard that has a scripture on it, and maybe for a while you get cleaned up. Maybe you say, you know what, I'm not going to do those drugs anymore. I'm not going to live this lifestyle. And you, you're kind of almost there, but you're really not. You're getting cleaned up. Your house is clean. Well, the demon doesn't want to be anywhere near where Jesus is. So they, they leave. But it's, it's a war. It's a spiritual war. It's behind the scenes. So what happens is that demon says, you know what, I, I don't like losing ground. And I see an opportunity to come back. But when I come back, I'm just not going to go by myself. I don't want to lose that ground again. It's a war. So I'm going to take seven more wicked than myself and really put the flag down and really uh, claim this territory. That's what's going on. So be careful of dabbling in the things of God. Back and forth, back and forth. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Let him claim your soul. And from that point, live in his grace. You don't have to worry about this stuff. Christians, you know, true believers can't be demon-possessed. There's an expression, I wish I had come up with it. It says that the same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. Throughout my life, people witnessed to me, and and I read the Bible, and I kind of went back and forth a little bit there. But my ice was starting to melt. And then I just was a puddle of water. And God got in, and God claimed my soul. However, You could be the clay. Don't be the clay. Because the clay sits out in that same beautiful sun that melts the ice of our heart, that wants to come into our life, that wants to bring freedom, peace, grace, function in relationships. And if you're the clay, every time you're out in that sun, you're just going to become more hard until you're just this solid lump that can't be used. There's a certain point in time where the potter can't use the clay. It's useless. It's just brittle. The clay can be used when it's formative. So my question this morning is, wherever you, you, maybe you came here for the first time today, maybe you came here for a few times, where's your heart? Are you the clay or are you the ice? So this is what's going on. Verse 28, John 13. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately, and it was night. Judas was the clay. It just got harder and harder. He became emboldened, emboldened in his sin, and there was no turning back at that point. Now, Judas had good cover. He was the treasurer for Jesus. So everybody looking around, of course the disciples didn't expect him. He's the treasurer. You know, he's, he's in a, a, an important position in, in the A-team of the disciples. He had everybody fooled except for the Lord. Now, spiritual deception is going to increase continually. We're going to see a lot more messianic figures in politics, in, in the world stage, in uh, the spiritual realm, the religious realm. But the Lord's not fooled. He knows who are his and who aren't. 
So the fourth thing that Jesus does when dealing with Judas is this. If you were the master at the feast, now Jesus probably was at that center table with John and Judas, and he was the master of the feast. He's the son of God. Who can, who can top that? So basically he says, when I, when I give sop, when he took the bread and he dipped it in the, in the mixture, the first person that he handed it to, it was a position of honor. So I think that even in that, listen, he washed Judas's feet. He gave Judas the sop as the master of the feast. He was saying to Judas, I love you. These guys are going to come after me anyway, Judas, but you can still repent. However, he allowed him to go. He went out and it was night. It was night in his heart. His heart was darkened. But I found this. Not in this particular Judas, but at times, traitors can be won over. And it's an awesome thing. It is an awesome thing, but it's got to start with repentance. And this is the formula, so to speak, or the sequence. It's repentance, forgiveness, forgetting, and then restoration. Right? If there's not repentance, then you're starting to build on a faulty foundation. It doesn't work. Repentance has to come first. And then there's forgiving. And we're forgetting, forgiving comes repentance. We don't keep bringing it up. It's in the past. There's a restored relationship. And then there's restoration, as if it never happened. And that's the way God is with us. We sin, we, we do things we shouldn't do, we, we fail when he really counts on us. But you know what? When we're repentant, he's completely forgiving of us. He's for completely forgiving of us. Verse 31. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. Wow, it was a somber meeting, and, and this is what Jesus says, and we'll get to that. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately, little children. I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I, I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give you, and, and we'll get into that. Judas is gone. Judas is not, he, he's, it would be throwing pearls before swine. He's made his decision. He waits for Judas to leave, and then he brings up three important points with the rest of the disciples. Sobering instructions. Number one is that glorification of the Father and the Son is coming. Boy, it must have been an emotional roller coaster being a disciple. You know, it's happy, it's, you know, people are getting saved, they're being raised from the dead, and then Jesus is talking about the cross and suffering, and now he's saying there's glorification coming. You know, we can easily look at this and say, oh, yeah, that makes sense, because we're looking at it in hindsight. We probably would be just as perplexed as they were. It was a lot. When you think about the cross, where Jesus was now taken, and he was beaten, and he was bloodied, and they punched him in the face, and they put a bag over his head, and they hit him, and they mocked him, and they scourged him with a Roman scourge. And he's just, probably his eyes were swollen shut. You know, the crown of thorns was jammed on his head. He probably was not recognizable. As a matter of fact, Isaiah alludes to that. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to be glorified. This is the beauty of how God sees things differently than we do. This is God's glorification. Why? Because his awesome plan of saving everyone in this room and everyone on this planet is finally coming to fruition. Satan thought he won. He dealt a death blow. 
However, God says this is the way it's supposed to be. God's brilliant plan of salvation for mankind and, and reconciliation has worked. So all that horrible mess that they were going to see, the women couldn't even look at him. When, when he was walking down the road, they were weeping, and he said, don't weep for me, weep for your children. This is the way mankind is, in a sense. I'm going to say this to you. You may be going through something so difficult right now, but God may be in it. He can still be in it. Maybe because of other factors, you have to deal with this. But God is going to do a work in your life. Let him be glorified in your life. Give him the chance to do that. Whatever you're dealing with right now, let him walk through it with you. Let him get you to the other side. Right? The dark is never so dark just before the daylight starts to dawn. Second point. He says, where I'm going, you can't come right now. And they keep asking him these questions. You know, Lord, we've been with you for some three plus years. We've slept next to you. We went through trials together. We ate with you. We were tired and exhausted with you. How could we not come? The disciples were thinking in the flesh to hear now. Where is it that you can't walk, that we can't walk, follow behind you like your little ducklings? Now, I submit to you, I'm going to cover this next Sunday. These weren't weak men. These were tough guys. But they completely acquiesced to the Son of God, and they loved him. They wanted to be, they didn't want to be without him. They didn't want it to end. I don't think we would either. You ever get so tired serving somebody? You know, even I think about the Highlands. You're just so tired, your feet hurt, your body, and then you, you, know, you look into the eyes of someone who you're helping and you're ministering to, and you, it just gives you a, a renewed sense of energy. Everything, they, I tell you, that three and a half years must have been really tough on them physically and emotionally. They wanted, wherever he went, they wanted to follow. But he had to die, and it wasn't their time to die yet. He had to release the captives from Hades. He had to be resurrected. He had to be with the Father, and they couldn't do that right now. Some of the things they couldn't do ever. So you can't come with me right now, but you'll know. You'll see later on. 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He says that three times in two verses. If you're, if you're a parent, you probably say things multiple times because you want your kids to understand it. I'm going to tell you again. Did, did you hear me the first two times? Let me tell you the third time. Guys, you got to get this. This is really important. you got to love one another. So his third instruction is, when he spoke about forgiveness, he said, I've forgiven you, you've got to forgive others. He said, I served you, you've got to serve others. Now it's love. I loved you, you've got to love others. Especially those of the faith. That's non-negotiable. The problem is that we take God's commandments as suggestions when we don't take God's word literally. And we don't really realize it's happening. There are some churches that everything's negotiable. You read the Bible, you take what you like out of it, the rest you throw out. It's all opinion. No, this is, these are God's commands. They're serious. He wants us to follow them. Love. Was it a new concept even when Jesus said it? Absolutely not. Was love found in the law? Absolutely. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your God with all your heart. Love, love, love was in the law. 
So how could this be a new commandment? Well, there's two Greek words for new. This one is new in terms of freshness. It's a new experience. Don't let it get stale. The new wineskins, you know, you can't be those old, cruddy, stale wineskins because the wine of the Holy Spirit will expand and it'll burst the wineskins and the the wine will go all over the place and you're not going to take it anywhere with you. You've got to be those new wineskins. There needs to be a freshness here. Not, well, the law says I only have to love this one time, so that's all I'm going to do. No, it's different. It's different. Now, what kind of love are we speaking about? Well, sometimes we, we look at the Hollywood movies and go, oh, that's love. It's love. It's so mushy. It's so squishy. And it just gives me warm feelings inside. I, I don't think so. Love is sacrificial. Love sometimes is tough. Love is hard. Sometimes in love, we're separated for a while. You see what I'm saying? Love sometimes involves discipline. Galatians 2, there's just some scriptures that, you know, it's like a speed bump. I see, I hit the scripture, and I stop. And I think about it. You know, we should meditate on all the scripture. But there's some that really just hit you. Galatians 2. Two apostles, after the resurrection, after the giving of the Holy Spirit. Apostle Peter, Apostle Paul. There's a function. The Apostle Peter is being a major hypocrite. This is right in the scripture. So the Apostle Paul goes to Peter and says, it says, I withstood him to his face. You could picture the two brothers like this. Two apostles. Peter, what you're doing is wrong. It's hypocritical. You're causing people to stumble. You've got to knock it off. And sometimes that's real love. Not the easy love that I just want to feel good and make, get myself into a frenzy of feeling good. Sometimes it's stop. Stop manipulating. Stop lying to me. We can't carry on this relationship anymore the way it is. Knock it off. I'm setting boundaries. Let me tell you something. That was the Lord's love. Do you think when he characterized the Pharisees and the religious religious hypocrites and he started saying, you're a brood of vipers, you think he didn't love them? Of course he loved them. He was trying to get to see something about themselves. He was holding up a mirror to their faces and saying, look, you guys are hypocrites. You're not doing God any favors and you're not doing the people any favors. So love encompasses all this stuff. And then the question is, do we love one another? By a show of hands, and everybody thinks, see, you think I'm going to trick you or something. In all seriousness, by a show of hands, if you've been here like the last three or four months and you've not really been here for years and you're kind of new, would you raise your hand, please? Please? Thank you. Here's my question to you. If you came into this church and you saw that we didn't love each other, would you want to stay? Call it out. No, of course not. It would be stupid. Like, I'm going to go somewhere. And, but, but if you saw that we loved each other, wouldn't you say to yourself, you know what, I want to be loved like they love each other. They all seem to really like each other. You know, when services end, they're here all the time. You know, pastor's got to kick them out and close the doors after a while. <laughs> you know? Well, that's the kind of love that I want. Well, I, I think I want to be in this church. I want to meet people. I want to be loved. See, people from the outside will see that we love each other. They will say, those are disciples of Jesus. Those are the real deal. And they'll want to stay. The world will know that you are my disciples because of your love for each other. Why is this important? Because Greco-Roman love, if you ever read about the Hellenistic Roman culture, there's a lot of phoniness in there. Love was a, a means to an end. Love was a tool Love was reciprocal. You do for me, I do for you. You wash my hand, I scratch your back. 
Read about that culture. It was, it was, it was depraved. It wasn't a lot of real love. But when the emperors declared that Christianity was illegal and they started killing these people and throwing them into the arenas and throwing their children to be mauled by wild animals. Well, I don't want to be a Christian. Really? If you read history, Christianity exploded. Why would anybody want to put their family in peril and be a Christian when this was going on? Because they saw the love for each other. That was the main motivator for the pagan world to become Christians. And then it, became, it, it, it grew so much that the, the, the emperors had to yield because there was too many Christians. They were influencing too much of society. There's books on that, of how Christianity and, uh, maybe even led one book indirectly to the downfall of Rome, that pagan culture, because of the love that Jesus taught his disciples. And maybe now is a good time to reevaluate our own love. And I'll admit, before I was a believer, even as a new believer, my love was reciprocal. I loved you if you could do something for me. You know what I'm saying? Let's just keep doing that back and forth thing. That's not love. That's not, that's not it. It's sacrificial. It's loving in spite of. It's loving knowing that a person can't help you or, or return a favor. It's sacrificial love. And... The world will know that we're believers if we love each other. First John is very clear. Do you say that you love God and you hate your brother? You're a liar. <laughs> wow, reading the Bible, it's called me a liar. Pretty, pretty potent stuff. I love God. No, you don't. I love the unsaved world. No, you don't. You can't love each other. You don't love anybody. 36, last few verses. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. In Mark 14, Peter then says, this, it's even better, Peter then says, Well, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And it gets better. All the disciples said, we're with Peter. Here, here. They did. They, they agreed with Peter. All of them in unison. Well, he may be gone, but we're going to all hang tight. You'll see. History tells us a different story. And you know what I love? The disciples wrote their own autobiographies in many sense. They admitted that they failed the Lord. They admitted that they said, I love the humility in the gospel writers. They show more of their failures than their successes because it was all about what the Holy Spirit was showing them. So here's the question. How well do we really know ourselves? How will we react in certain situations? Certain psychological terms like mob mentality, peer pressure, self-preservation all came to being in the next several hours. And people succumbed to those things. Will we remain loyal to the Word of God? Could we ever see ourselves as a traitor to the Lord? And if we did do that, would we just give up? Or would we want to be restored? Would we want to come back to what the Lord is doing? And then the other question is, for those of us who raise our hands and say we've been betrayed before, we've been hurt, are we open to repentance and restoration to others who have hurt us? Yeah, but that makes me vulnerable, Pastor Joe. I got news for you. I know I come off as a certain way, but I don't like to be vulnerable either. A little transparency from the pulpit. I don't like to open up my heart and get it stomped on either. Who likes that? Raise your hand. No, I didn't think so. <laughs> so I get good feedback when I do the hand-raising thing. 
in the next chapter, the Lord's going to reassure his disciples because he just sacked them with some heavy stuff in this chapter. The next few chapters, he's going to reassure them. It's going to be comforting to them and be comforting as, to us as well. So I just want to leave you with this. How well do I know myself? And I'll tell you, I boasted about things and when I was in a situation, I failed too. We're all going to do it. But I have to tell you that if we're in with the Lord, if we're in prayer, if we're in the Word, if we're in fellowship, even when bad things do happen to us, I believe we'll react differently. And I'm going to talk to you about what the disciples did just completely um, omission instead of commission in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll get to that. So I just would ask at this point, because we, we are frail beings and because the Bible says that our hearts are wicked, we are sinners, that we would make a concerted effort when the trials come, when the storm comes, to do what the Lord has called us to do, to stay ever so closely, whatever he commands in the scripture to do, that we do it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for not just the teaching and the law, but kind of need to see the interactions with these men who really gave up a good part of their lives.